If you'll open your Bibles and then turn them to the book of Philippians, in chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 3 through 8 this morning. Before we get there, I want to just kind of talk about our culture in general. You know, many in our culture believe that happiness can be found in pleasure or self in this life, and some define happiness by positive circumstances or circumstances that they can control, whether that's a job, whether that's a relationship or a house. And it fails to make them happy, they dump it and look for another, which can lead to despair, can lead to disappointment, it can lead to dissatisfaction and longing for happiness, yet never coming to pass. But hear this this morning, church, for the believer in Jesus Christ, you and I have a different source of joy than the outside world. You and I have a deep and abiding joy that is built on truth. And so when we think about the country we live in, there's the quest for joy and happiness, and it's built within the fabric of it. In America, it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And yet many today live unhappy. And unhappiness can stem from things like constant complaining, critical of self and others, living beyond our means, regretting the past, maybe worrying about the future, even gossiping and holding grudges. The list goes on. You know, if you're familiar with the NFL football, you know that Tom Brady, after he won three different Super Bowls, he was interviewed and he was asked the question, or he just, he was commenting after the Super Bowl and said, is this all that there is? He makes this comment. So it's nothing new, not to find what you're looking for and not to be satisfied. So it begs the question for us this morning, can we know a joy that's better than anything in this life? Now, mind you, the background here is Paul is writing from a Roman jail to a culture that was considered consumer-driven. They had theaters, they had shows, they had parties, they had games, all you could ask for from a world's perspective. But here's Paul, he's in jail, he's chained to a Roman soldier and for the sake of Christ, yet joyful. And he's writing to a church that he planted who loved him and they actually supported him in their poverty and yet loved him, yet for the sake of the gospel they suffered. But Paul says to them, you should have joy because you have Jesus, right? So how do you have the joy that Paul has and is commending to this Philippian church? There's an old acronym that I heard about 10 years ago from a pastor friend of mine, come to find out it's been, it's been around forever, but it's the acronym of joy and how to find it. It's joy, Jesus, others, and then yourself. The acronym of finding joy is Jesus, others, and then yourself. And for Paul, he wanted them to share in the fullness of deep abiding joy that's found in Jesus. Even he wrote, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's joy was found in Christ and others, never for himself, never asked for anything. He didn't live as if it, he didn't exist, but Paul lived for the benefit of others. Even the heart of Philippians 2 he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility, count others more highly than yourself. Now, here's the problem. When we reverse joy, we get the word yodge. Okay? When you reverse joy, you get yodge, which is yourself, others, and Jesus. Okay? And so we, don't, we won't find joy there, and I'm not commending yodge to you today. But what I am commending to you this morning is that real joy is found in Jesus, others, and in yourself. But the problem is our culture commends another. 
And it's built on self, comfort, and satisfaction. But what I want us to see here is Paul will have none of that. Even in his circumstances, he's going to say it over and over again. And so the question becomes, how do you and I get this joy? Better yet, how do you and I know this joy? And where does it come from? And so my main idea this morning is this, church, is that you and I will know real joy when it's found in Christ and his people. Okay? You will know real joy when you find it in Christ and his people. And what Paul does in these following verses is just give four different elements of where joy is found, all rooted in Jesus and others. And so open your Bibles there to verse 3 in the first chapter of Philippians, and I'll read the following. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. So first off here, let me ask this, do you lack joy this morning? And I would say that you're not alone because it's something that we have to fight for together. And Paul says here in the first few verses that prayer is the means that God has given himself to be in his presence and to be in prayer. Yes, Paul's in prison. Yes, he's in chains and he's unable to do what he loved. But here's, what, here's the catch. Paul could still pray. Look at verses three and four. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. Now I know that I'm not the norm up here and that I wake up first thing in the morning and I hit the ground running. Maybe not running. <laughs> Maybe just hitting the ground, right? But for some of you, you don't wake up that way, right? Your mornings can be rough. In fact, they can be difficult if you lack joy or if you're struggling to find it, especially in Christ. And so if we're not careful, instead of going to the well, we can easily look for something else to run to. But if you and I are going to find real satisfaction, real delight, real joy, it can be known through prayer. And Paul says to this Philippian church, church, every time I think about you, every time I pray, it's for you because it brings me joy. Paul had a gratitude, even though he was in prison, chained in conflict, but he was not going to let that squeeze his joy. Why? Because he's grateful for people and not things, right? But people. And that's what the Christian life is about, isn't it? Like Paul, let me ask you this question. Are you a thankful person? Or are we sometimes tempted to believe that it's God's job to bless us, right? I had a, I had a man in, invest in me early and told me this and has changed me quite a bit. He says, if you will daily chip, remind yourself that God owes you nothing but judgment. Anything else that you get should cause you to rejoice. Amen? When we consider what you and I deserve... And what we have in Christ, it should cause you and I to rejoice, right? And so Paul, he's thinking about this church he's planted. He's got the big picture. He knows the joy of prayer. And I think this is just a good word for us, right? To not allow incidences and conflicts, which we know will go on in our entire life, right? 
and will try to seek to rob you with joy. But the question is, are we going to allow those things to keep us from being grateful and joyful? Because our joy will be robbed if that's all we think about. And Paul's looking at things differently, and he's teaching us how to do this. And so the question is, what do we think we need for thrilling, satisfying joy today other than Jesus? What do we need? Yes, we pray for our jobs. We pray for our needs to be met. We pray for our families. But for, jo for Paul, the depths of his joy is Jesus and people. Let me ask you, do you have that? Are you grateful for that? You know, we live in a, in a society today where advertisements are built on you being dissatisfied. If you didn't know that, now you know. But telling you that you don't have what you need, right? Everything from bigger and better, bigger and better car, bigger and better house. I need more activities. I need bigger muscles, right? Did you know pastors are also tempted to think that they need bigger churches, right? Because if I have bigger if I just get bigger or I have more, I'll have more joy, right? And I think for us this morning, church, yes, we need bigger, but what we need is a bigger view of Jesus, right? We need not a bigger view of things, not a bigger view of activities, but we need a bigger view of our Savior. He's the one who is bigger vision for who he is and what he's done for us. And that's what Paul's got going on in this passage in this jail cell, right? And that yes, in chains, but he's got a vision of Christ. And so again, I think he's teaching us here. He's letting us know how it happens. And so the question becomes, are you in prayer? Are you persistent in prayer? Are you grateful to God through prayer? And are you receiving joy in prayer? Paul says, listen, I'm grieving, I'm afflicted. And even in my affliction, at one point in Acts, it says he was singing at midnight, chained to a Roman guard, right? He's not just writing this. He's not just saying this. He's doing this and his affection is spilling over. You may say, well, Chip, you don't know what I'm going through. And I, and I don't. But I will say this. We do not have a mindless joy, right? We do not have a dismissal of grief. This is what the Bible calls rejoicing through suffering, right? Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6. He says this. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, afflictions, hardships, beatings, imprisonments, hunger, through slander, punished, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Isn't that countercultural today? I have nothing yet I have everything in Christ, right? I'm sorrowful, and yet I'm rejoicing. You know, it reminds me again, of some advice for us, and it was for me. Sometimes as a Christian, we have to beat this into our heads, right? I think sometimes we spend too much time listening to ourselves and not preaching to ourselves. We need to stop listening to ourselves and stop listening to the culture and start listening to the gospel of the good news of Jesus, right? Reminding ourselves that Jesus died in my place. I now belong to him. He has saved me. He has set me free. Sin no longer has dominion over me, right? Death has been defeated and this is a beauty. One day we'll be home, right? If you struggle with this, I'd encourage you to look at the psalmist. Psalm 42 and 43, 
Psalmist writes about spiritual turmoil that he's in. He's up and down. He's wrestling with God. And he says this in verse 5. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise him, my salvation and my God. Later in the next chapter, he says this. I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a lyre. Saying, I'm going to play music, right? At the beginning, he doesn't know where God is, and at the end, he's playing and singing music. And it bids the question, how does that happen? You preach the gospel to yourself, right? You preach the gospel and not accept the downcastness of your soul. You realize, yes, there'll be trials, but we have his word and through prayer, we preach the truth of the gospel to ourselves daily. You know, I, when I invest in guys all the time, I always tell them, always start your day this way, right? We understand and have a bigger view of who God is and who we are and understand of how holy he is and how imperfect we are. And yet in his kindness, he allowed us to see our need for a savior, right? Start your day that way. Be reminded of how much grace that's been extended to you. And so for this, Paul tells the Philippian church, hey, know the power of the joy of prayer. But look at verse five. He says, that joy of prayer, now know the joy of partnership together. Look at this, verse five. I have this joy of prayer. And he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul says, hey, I'm praying, I'm thinking of you, I have joy because of this partnership in the gospel. That word partnership is the word koinonia, which is where we get the word that's rendered fellowship or communion, and it was actually in the first century centered around a common mission. So yes, we're united as friends, but you and I are united around a common mission, right? When you get friends and you're, not, you're united around a common mission, Paul says you get joy, and if not, you're going to miss it. And so Paul and this Philippian church, they had a mutual interest, and that was this. That was getting the gospel to people, right? It was getting the gospel to people. Now, when we think about this life, in friendships, they start with com commonalities, right? That's how you begin friendships. But Christian friendships should be distinct and more meaningful, right, than non-Christian friendships because we have a common Savior, a spiritual commonality. So if you're here at this church this morning and you're in Christ, the Bible says that you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ, in the household of God. That means we have one father together, right? Non-Christians have friends, but it's only because of God's common grace, right? But what makes Christian friendships so distinct, unique, and meaningful is that they're centered on Jesus and the gospel, right? And the outside world looks at that and, and, and says no, they don't understand it. But when people look at us together and we look at one another and they see us from different backgrounds and different places together, they ought to say, it's odd that they're together. You know, it kind of made me, reminded me of a, a scenario about 10 years ago, I used to live in Raleigh and I was in a car one evening and one of the brothers was going to speak at um, NC State to talk to some of their students and it was his practice to take some guys with him for encouragement and, um, and whatnot. So anyways, the brother that's speaking, he's from Kentucky, and he was about the same age as I am, and so he loved all things 80s, okay? Just, just go, Kentucky, 80s, all right? But he actually went to school, in, high, in college, he went to, to school, played second base in college, and came to faith in Jesus Christ because the shortstop shared the gospel with him. Isn't that interesting? 
In the very back corner with me in the back seat is a brother that was from Alabama and he had the accent to boot, right? But this brother had tattoos all over his body, all the way up to his neck everywhere. But when you spoke to that brother, he was about as tender as he could be. Then I had another brother that was in the front seat and guess where he was from? Buffalo, New York, right? And so he actually had a lot of run-ins and issues and almost lost his life before coming to Christ. Both of those brothers are church planters now, by the way. But the brother from New York, he actually, I got to stay in an overnight with him one time at a hotel. He wore these headphones with him and he wore them all night long. And so I asked him the next day, he's like, what are you listening to while you're sleeping at night? He said, whale noises. <laughs> Thought that was odd, right? You're like, okay, Chip, what's your point? Here's my point. That evening we're driving down the road. The guy from Alabama, out of nowhere in the silence of the car, looks around at all of us and says, brothers, there's no reason why any of us are in this car tonight apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? There's no other reason that we're together apart from Jesus, right? We're centered on the gospel. We are brothers because of the gospel. Only God does something like this, right? So it was a deep affection for these brothers, different people yet in the car together that night. You know, it's funny, even in our relationship sometimes, we can also have conflict, right? But now that we have the gospel that is the center of our life, we handle conflict in a different manner, right? So if, you have, if you're friends with people at some point, guess what's gonna happen? You're gonna have conflict, right? If you're married and you have two sinners living under the same house, guess what's gonna happen? You're gonna have conflict sometimes, right? But you have to have a way to handle that difficulty. And you ask how? Well, you handle it with the gospel, right? Because the gospel never only just connects us, but it helps us deal with difficulty in our relationships. Even Paul in, the, in uh, Philippians 4, he writes and says to Yodia and Syntyche, who were co-workers in the gospel, he says to them, hey, agree in the Lord, right? Agree in the gospel, because that's what the gospel does, right? It teaches us forgiveness. We forgive people because we've been forgiven much. We reconcile because we've been reconciled. We, we serve one another because Christ has served us, right? So that's how you agree in the Lord. That's how you handle conflict in relationships to the gospel. So let me ask you that this morning. Do you have those kind of relationships? Do you have those kind of friendships? Friends of people that are not your age, not your color, don't like sports like you do or whatever your thing is, and it would be strange that you would be together, right? Because friendship should not be based solely on the norms of society. They should be unique. And that's Paul's relationship with the Philippians, right? And that's what we're longing for. But here's the catch. You're not going to find it on Facebook. We will not find it on TikTok. We will not find it on Snapchat, right? It's through gospel relationships. Even in 1 Corinthians 1, 9, it says, because of the gospel, we've been caught up into this fellowship with the son together, right? He's our source of strength together. He's our encouragement, our support and help through the spirit. So for Paul, he would want these brothers and sisters by his side. They were deep friends centered on Christ as partners and living on mission. But let me, let's talk about mission for a second though. What makes a partnership so powerful is the gospel and mission, right? When you go to a restaurant, there's an obvious difference between a customer and a coworker, right? But we never want to look at the church as a customer, right? Because if, it's tr if the gospel's true and we're brothers and sisters in Christ, we all week we're working, 
together, we encourage one, and we get together, and we encourage one another, and we sing praise to our God for his grace. But we're also co-workers, which the church is in the business, right? But if you have Christian friendships, but not on mission, there's joy that Paul says that you're missing out on. There's joy that you're not experiencing, right? Because if friendships are built on the gospel and you're doing mission together, there's going to be a deep abiding relationship. When you're laboring together and you're serving side by side together with other believers and rallying around a common mission for a purpose, Paul says you get partnership, right? When you get mission, you get friends. Question is, do you have those in your life? You know, here at Staples Mill, the invite here is we're not just a worship service here. And there's far, more, far better, more worship services in Richmond, as Jim mentioned last week. And there's better preaching in Richmond, as he mentioned. But what Paul is commending here is an invite to be a co-laborer, a gospel partner, right? The gospel must be the center and the mission of our purpose, both of which are the bedrock of the church. You've heard the line that we use at, here at this church, that we are rooted in the truth and we're reaching in love. The gospel has to be first in all that we do, centered on Christ's love for us at, at the cross in all our relationships. And we just take the love that he has shown us and we pour that out on others on mission. But we have to realize this morning that it is a costly love, right? It's a denying self type of love. It's a sacrificial love, just like our savior. We take the love of Christ and we tell the coming generation who God is and what he's done. We labor with others in the body to teach children how they might know Christ. We strive together to help teenagers to know Christ and to walk with Christ. And we rally together in life groups under the word of truth, right? Centered on the gospel. To love, to care, to understand, to pray for, to minister to, to fight the good fight with one another with a heart of reaching others, even if it costs us something. Bible even describes where older men are investing in younger men, older women are investing in younger women, teaching and modeling to them what it means to be a Christ follower until the Bible says, Christ is formed in you. And so ultimately in that laboring, we equip, we encourage one another to take this gospel to those that have never heard. Maybe that's where we work. Maybe that's the neighborhood that we live in. Maybe it's where we eat, but ultimately it's to the ends of the earth. And it begs the question, why? Because that's what the local church does. That's what the church, God's people do. It's what a gospel partnership is. So Paul says, listen, Philippians, you make my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the, in the gospel. It's the heartbeat of what you are. And that's what makes Paul joyful in the Lord towards the Philippians. Friendships that are rooted in Jesus for the purpose of mission because that's what a team looks like. That's what a co-laborer looks like. That's what a partner looks like. So Paul says, know the joy of prayer, know the joy of partnership, but look at verse six. He says, know the joy of anticipation of what's to come. Verse six, he says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So hear this. God is the one is the continuing to work in them and his will to work in them to, towards completion. I heard a man once say, there's two days on my calendar, today and that day, right? That's how Paul lived his life, rejoicing today. Yes, life is hard, it's difficult, but I'm rejoicing because I have a deeper sense of joy than my circumstances. 
And I'm rejoicing in light of that day that's coming soon. And that's what you have to do. You have to lean into the future to anticipate what's coming and be rest assured that God is keeping you as a Christian. Not just as an individual, but he's writing to a local church here, right? As the church as well that he's writing. That he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. God is forming a people for himself that he's preserving and holding. And that should encourage you this morning. That should encourage you that those that belong to Christ. This is what we teach, right? This is what we sing, that we can't save ourselves. That God has come to save us. And it's God who sustains us and it's God is the one who keeps us. And Paul says, I am sure of this. And you and I can be sure of this as well, right? Now there's a lot of things in this life that we're not sure of, right? But he says, we can be sure of this, that God has us, that we are his this morning. And doesn't that give you joy? That you belong to the savior. I had a friend tell me this one time, this life is as close to hell, Chip, as you're ever gonna have. And that day is coming, the day of the Lord, when he comes and all his people will see him and we will marvel over our savior, amen? So personally, guys, when you think about your life in ministry at this point, we can say it was God that kept us, right? Not, it wasn't our grip on God that made the difference, but it was his grip on us. See, this morning, I'm not confident in my goodness. I'm not confident in my character. I'm not confident in my history, but I'm confident in the Lord. It is God that keeps us. It is God that has us, and we are his forever. And here's the beauty, guys. God never has an incomplete assignment. Our God starts what he finishes in us, right? How many of you have ever had a job around the house that you can never seem to finish? Those of you have a garage and you probably have 20 million things that you said that you're going to put away and they're still lingering. You know who you are, right? But not so with the Lord. The Lord begins the work of salvation in us and through his, through his spirit, he's going to perfect us again until Christ is formed in us. God finishes what he starts and that means that you and I need to be patient with one another, right? Because he's still working on us, some of us more than others, right? He's still working on us, but he's not finished. And so let me just encourage you this morning, no matter what stage of life you're in, no matter where you are in your walk, if you have breath, God is still at work in you. Know that truth this morning. God is still at work in you. Now, later he's going to say, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So that means we're not going to be lazy, but we're going to work our salvation with fear and trembling, not for salvation, but to work from what God has already worked in us. And so he's calling us to holiness. He's calling us to righteousness. And he's the one working all things for his will and for his pleasure and for, and not ours. I love the verse from Jude 24. Listen to this. He writes, unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. You want to hear that again? That's where the source of joy is, is that he is going to bring us to glory. You know, it kind of reminds me of when Jenny, Lily, and I were in China, and we were in the southern part of China. This is several years back. And uh, we were at, in Guangzhou was where the U.S. consulate was, and we were trying to get a visa so we could get back to the U.S. And so 
As typical overseas flights, guess what? You're up at 3 a.m. or 2 a.m. and you're trying to hitch a flight by 4 a.m. And so at 4 a.m. we're all on, on this flight. I've got a crying baby for two to three hours on this flight. We end up in Beijing only to find, we had to go to be, through Beijing, only to find out in Beijing you get, you get your stuff back and you have to recheck again and get back in line. So imagine the frustration that's happening. And so I still have a crying baby, but when I get there, they don't have all my luggage, okay? So picture this, crying baby, crying new mother, and me behind a counter trying to talk to a lady that didn't know any English, okay? And so finally, we agreed to disagree. They said that the, the, the baggage would come. So we had one more, we had a couple more flights. So we had to jump on the next flight. And Jenny and I just looked at each other and said, we're just gonna cut our losses. If it's gone, it's gone. But so we flew to Boston, only to get to Boston to find out that there is a huge snowstorm in front of us, right? And they're talking about closing down the airport. Mind you, 16 hours of a crying baby. <laughs> Go there with me, okay? And so I'm exhausted. And by the, by the time we get there, by God's grace, we were the last flight out of Boston, okay? At 4 p.m., I'll never forget it, right? And I'm boarding this plane, and this is what's on my mind. Lord, I just want to go home, right? I, I just, I just want to get home. That's, that's where I want to be. I want to get home. And here's the beauty of it. We did get home, and I had family there uh, that was waiting for us, blood relatives, but guess who else was there? I had brothers and sisters in Christ rejoicing, waiting for us to come home. Paul says, listen, that's how we live life. We look to that day, right? We have bumps, we have trials, but unto him who's going to keep us from stumbling and present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Friends, we're going home. We're going home, okay? And it's secure. It's not a boarding pass, but you have the Holy Spirit within you, which is the guarantee of that day coming, right? So even in the difficulty of this life, we have to keep our eyes on that reality and not, let's not think that heaven's going to be here, right? Because if you do, you're just going to be frustrated your whole life. But the day is coming, church, when our God will wipe away all of our tears. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more poverty, no more sin, and no more death. And as Habakkuk says, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the water covers the seas. And Paul says to this Philippian church, church, fill your mind with this. What God has started in you, he is continuing in you, and he's going to complete it. Rejoice in that. Because he had seen God's faithfulness in their life. He had seen their fruitfulness, evidence that they belong to God, and he's rejoicing. To know the joy of what's to come, being one of his forever, that should fill you and I with joy this morning and humility because we know that we've done nothing to deserve this grace. Amen. Know the joy of prayer, Paul says. Know the joy of partnership. Know the joy of anticipation of what's coming. The last two verses, he says, know the joy of affection. Verses seven and eight. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are, all, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? 
What I want you to see is not just Paul's theology. What I want you to see is his emotion and passion. He says, it's right for me to feel this way, to rejoice in the gospel and people. Why? Because I have you in my heart. You're in my heart. You're all partakers of grace with me, right? He says, in prison, you provided support. While I was given a defense before the authorities, you didn't abandon me. You weren't ashamed of my chains. And in the first century, it was a shameful thing to be in prison. But I want you to look at verse 8. Notice the affectionate language that Paul uses here. He says, I'm not exaggerating. God is my witness. These are deep, genuine affections for Jesus and the community of faith. And this morning, church, I just want to encourage us. Let's pray for great affections. Right? It's not wrong. It's not wrong. It should be there. Sometimes it's not. But I'm not calling for mindless or silly affections, but ones that are rooted in the truth. It's great to celebrate and worship. It's okay to give Pastor Jim an amen every once in a while. Amen. Don't tell him I told you, but it's good to give that. But this isn't a classroom, nor are our life groups. I never want them just to be a classroom or to Sunday to feel like a classroom. Are we going to learn? Yes. But there should be affection. There should be celebration with one another. And Paul, he's passionate. Again, a guy that sings in jail to the Lord. Who does that? We see his life, we see his theology, we see his pursuit of holiness, his prayer life, but I don't want us to miss his affections. I think the question for us is, do you have that for others? Do you have affection for people, first of all, right? Is that affection being known to those people around you? And here Paul is telling them how he feels about them. Do you do that? Do you do that? And he says, this is how I feel about all of you. Not just a select few, but all of them. You know, we've been walking through the through 1 Corinthians with the Corinthian church. Paul expressed even the affection for them, even this church that was immature, self-centered, and worldly at Corinth, right? Even those that disappointed him. And so just thinking about it this week, I've reflected hard on this. I've been super challenged by this personally, and I just think it's a good word for us. Let's just not love God with our minds. Let's love God with our mind, heart, soul, and strength. Paul says to them, I have the love that Jesus has for you. Paul can say the affection that Jesus has is the way that I'm loving you. Here's a better question. How can I love the person the way that Jesus loves them? Or how can I speak truth and be kind and serve the way that Jesus does? As God is working through me, I'm his representative to love you the way that he is loving you. Isn't it good to know this morning that our God in Christ has affections for us? Isn't it good to know that, that our God has affection for us? This week in my quiet time with the Lord, I've been reading through the minor prophets and I ran into Zephaniah. I was in Zephaniah, books that just get overlooked sometimes. And I, and I ran into chapter three, verse 18, and it says that our God sings over us, his people right? Our God is singing over his people. He's a singing God who sings over his people and has affections for us rooted in eternity and it's stretched into the future. This is the challenge for us to, to know this love and to share affection for one another as his people. And so in conclusion this morning, here's some questions to think through. Do you need joy? I think we all do. 
Well, how do you get it? It comes through Jesus and people. What does it look like? One of the ways, Paul says, is the joy of prayer, right? So the question becomes, how's your prayer life? I heard a man once tell me that prayerlessness equals joylessness sometimes. If joy is found in Jesus, do you know him? Because Christlessness can also lead to joylessness. And you can know him today. But other questions that I would, would ponder upon is this. Do I have gospel partnerships? Is my life centered on the gospel and my relationships? And I, am I participating in the mission? Or another question is, am I looking to the future of that day? Or am I so occupied with my circumstances right now or my, acti my activities or the things that I'm involved in? Another question to ask is, are my emotions moving at all, right? And if not, again, as homework this week, go home, read the psalmist from Psalm 42 and 43 and pray with the psalmist. Why are you downcast, O my soul, hope in God? I think that's a good word for us this morning, right? Because let's be people of joy, Jesus, others, and then yourself. And that's where true joy is found. But if you're not a Christian here this morning, I want to urge you to look to Jesus first. In Hebrews, it says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the father. Can I encourage you? Look to Jesus this morning who lived a perfectly sinless life. He died a death that you and I deserve to die. God judged his son for our sin in our place as our substitute. That if we would trust in him, we can receive forgiveness, his righteousness, and eternal security. But for those that are in Christ this morning, this is what unites us as brothers and sisters today, right? This is what brings you and I together, is the gospel and each other. And so I want to point us to Jesus this morning, because we know that in him we find life, we find meaning, and ultimately we find joy. Let's pray this morning. Lord, keep, we just pray this morning that you would just keep us from going through the motions. Would you just keep us simply from being just thinkers and not feelers, but keep us from being just feelers and not thinkers. We want to be like Jesus, full of grace and truth and who had affection for his church. Would you, oh Lord, we pray that you would increase our affection for you and for others. And would you help us to express that? Would you press in our heart both gratitude and prayer, realizing what has been given to us is more than we could imagine or deserve today? Would you help us to live in that reality? And Lord, we pray for our friends here this morning that may not know you. We pray that you would open their hearts and that you would draw them to Jesus, that they might find in him everything because we believe that he is. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.